everybody. It's great to be with you today. I'm Abraham Lee, the teaching leader for BSF in the San Francisco region. And today we're looking at Matthew chapter 14, a chapter full of dramatic events that teaches us about the all-sufficiency of Christ when we see him for who he says he is. Uh, I've learned personally over the years that if you're feeling your faith isn't going anywhere, then it's likely going downhill. <laughs> so if you feel like and I felt that way. If my faith isn't, if it's not going up, it's usually going down. Uh, it, faith doesn't tend to stay stagnant, stay st in a place of stasis. It's usually developing upward, or it's becoming defunct from lack of use. And so, I've learned over the years that that's what happened. And you don't realize this until you're hit by some trial or difficulty, and then suddenly the person or myself realize God hardly enters our minds as a primary and essential source of our help um, when troubles hit. Kind of like when a young person in trouble might call up a best friend or their parents or some other trustworthy person that they have gotten to know as a person that they can count on. You know, that's ultimately the proof and substance of our faith as well. Where we go, we're in, we're in trouble. Let me start off with a story as we enter into talk about this chapter. A few years ago, before the pandemic, some friends alerted me to the trend toward living in tiny homes. You may have seen uh, uh, many people post up videos on YouTube, for instance, about downsizing and living out of container homes, tiny homes, and maybe even RVs. Uh, and this has happened because the cost of living in San Francisco in the Bay Area has become so unaffordable. Rents taking up more than half of the monthly income, if you can believe that, people start to think about these new unconventional housing solutions. So in most cases, people had to radically downsize from the things that they owned in order to move into these tiny homes. So they give up furniture, clothes, kitchenware, and of course, family heirlooms uh, that don't fit, that held, held uh, very close sentimental value. Everything that didn't have a daily essential function had to go. So most people say that downsizing and getting rid of things uh, that have strong sentimental value is a very difficult thing to do as there's uh, a process of mourning and grief that's associated with it because they hold such a special place in our memories. The feeling of letting go and throwing away those memories of the past uh, are put us and bring us in a position of grieving and maybe a feeling that uh, we're losing them in some ways. So in the what happened, I saw a more vivid picture of this in the news recently. In the floods that happened this past winter, there was a family who lost all the old heirloom furniture, piles of furniture that they kept in the basements because of the water rushing in and taking up um, all that floor space. And they didn't have time to pump all that water out before the damage was done. And the person most impacted by this was the mother in the home who wouldn't let go of any of that furniture before the floods uh, hit, she refused to do, uh, let go of any of that, do some house cleaning because, um, you know, she'd say over her dead body, this is my family history and I need these things. Well, uh, increasingly though, uh, furniture started to accrue in the basement, but also in the back garage as well. Well, the floods came and with the disaster to their basement, the furniture became entirely worthless not even worthless, they actually uh, was disintegrating in the basement and causing mold. So all of a sudden though, uh, with the disaster, her emotional attachment 
to the things no longer became an issue because she realized what a harm it posed to the family's health. So one strong, once strong feelings left her, uh, she saw the need to throw away the rotting mess and something interesting happened. The greatest realization happened days after when she and the family realized the radical transformation that cleaning house and getting rid of the old stuff created for their quality of life as they remodeled and had nicer furniture put in after their insurance company paid them to to remodel and get this done uh something interesting happened they had more friends and guests come by they had a healthier nicer home to invite people to since the aging furniture that they lived in no longer was pushing out old dust accumulated over the years including airborne mildew and everything about their lives became better than anyone in the family thought could be possible. And that included the mom, who once held on to old, reluctant ideas that these things were going to be important for herself or maybe her children in the future. Uh, she never missed the old stuff once they were gone. It was holding her back, actually, and she didn't even realize it. So watching her tell her story made me realize how similar our relationship with God is when it is hindered by old perceptions and wrong beliefs that we have picked up, unbiblical perceptions and teachings that we have picked up secondhand from somewhere, whether in the church or from sermons, and we really haven't gone directly to God's Word, studying it for ourselves. So this week, we see how these perceptions can create a small view of God that can lead us to a small view of our faith, such that our faith becomes powerless when difficulties come and the rubber meets the road, so to speak, in our practice and living out of our daily life into the world. So in this chapter, Jesus teaches us how sovereign and sufficient he is in the face of all the old ways I have about thinking about my life that may be hampering my faith and preventing me from growing. So let me start off by sharing the verse for the week. Uh, found in Matthew 14, 27, he says, Jesus says, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And then this motif and this um, allegory of walking with Jesus on the waters is also found in Isaiah 43, 2, where he says, When you go through the deep waters and great trouble, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. So the big idea for this week is the sufficiency that we have in Christ. And the chapter is causing us to learn that spiritual growth is really when we move from our small view of God to the greater knowledge of God as He actually is. So we always start off with the small view of God based on our lack of knowing God as intimately as we ought. And it grows when we come into a fuller, enhanced, and glorified knowledge of Christ as we plug into and study wrestling with God's Word every day. So there are two visions in this chapter that we'll be focusing on. The first division is sufficiency for our needs found in Matthew 14 verses 1 to 21 and the second is sufficient for our salvation Matthew chapter 14 22 to 36. So we start off by uh, hearing how Herod Antipas had put John the Baptist uh, to death because of his relationship, because he was being criticized for his relationship with Herodias, his 
uh, brother Philip's wife. And Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. So Herod Antipas uh, thought John was raised from the dead, or he claimed that uh, from not much knowledge, but he may have said this because he had heard uh, John talk about the resurrection from the dead, from all the times he'd listened to John rebuking and trying to teach him about the kingdom of God. So Herod probably misconstrued the resurrection from the dead as something John himself would do if he was to be put to death himself. So many Herods today also exist, you know, misappropriating the Bible, uh, half listening in, half listening out, not fully understanding and uh, applying it to themselves in the ways which to justify their actions. And if John did come back from the dead, you would think that based on that alone, Herod would have repented and turned to God. Instead, we don't read anything of that sort. He instead uh, points to the miraculous powers that are work in him, found in verse 2. And we're going to see shortly that actually that's what most people look at, the miraculous performance coming out of the prophets, but not the message being told through the miracles to bring people to repentance and salvation by understanding the identity of the Messiah and what he is proclaiming, uh, convicting our hearts of. Uh, some other questions that others have asked is, why would John the Baptist get involved in speaking about state affairs? Uh, and some scholars believe that John was actually calling not just only the poor or those people gathering to him uh, at the Jordan, but also people up and down the social economic ladder, whether they be rulers or merchants, uh, even the religious people who sometimes came to him out of curiosity. So it was natural for John to condemn the things which are wrong and bring all people to a state of knowledge in their heart of repentance. So we realize and we see here that the message of the kingdom of God is not lost on the ears of even the people highest uh, ruling in places of privilege and position in society, also uh, among the teachers of the law, as well as the middle class and the poor. You see even Herod uh, fearing to, uh, losing his credibility among his peers or his officials, looking foolish among his party guests and reneging on his promise that he goes ahead and does this atrocious uh, deed against a prophet, a holy prophet of Israel. It says here in the chapter that the king was greatly distressed because of his oaths that he made to give to um, Herodias' daughter, what she willed, and then the dinner guests who were present, so he did not want to refuse her. So this is another reminder of the theme that's run through those people who are in rebellion against God, where their concern is so much attached to how other people, what other people think about them, that they move based on their appearance before uh, others rather than the conviction of the Holy Spirit on their life and the many proofs and opportunities of grace and mercy that God shows them. So how does the progression of sin in Herod and Herodias' life warn us? It's a warning of sin uh, is a blessing if taken to heart. John was concerned about repentance for people of all levels of society, not just the poor and the common man. Jesus also rebuked the religious leaders who should have known better to repent, and some did so and followed him. But a refusal to see and hear the warning can lead to hate and war against God's law and God's people. So Jesus never allows people to rest in uh, kind of a self-contentment or self-satisfied state of ignorance about their sins. And in fact, uh, as we all know, sin's consequence, 
consequences always manifest themselves in the open very clearly in the ways in which we live into our relationships into the ways in which we live out in, in the world as a witness and these things are a witness to our great need for god's deliverance so what stands out to us about john the baptist disciple coming to jesus well they came to jesus uh, to share this news and john's disciples were evidently very grieved uh, where else would they have to go except to the one John had taught them about? Jesus, who John had said was unworthy of unlatching even his sandals uh, off his feet. They went to Jesus as in a prayer to know what should be done and how to understand it all. And the question for us through this is where do we go when we do not understand uh, or can't make sense of what God is doing in our lives or the trouble and the uh, kind of cognitive, cognitive disconnects uh, that happen in our faith when we don't understand why bad things happen to good people when we can't make sense of it all. So Jesus is God, but he also grieves uh, as a person and he grieves over our sins. So Jesus often withdrew to pray to the Father, and he knew that all these things would happen in John's travail. But there are two important things to note about this. First, that John came to the scene to be a, a witness to what Jesus would do. So his own death, John's own death, was pointing to the death that Jesus would ultimately die on the cross of Calvary. And then secondly, John being murdered by Herod, is a condemnation of the rulers who were also given the message as well. The gospel message and the evangelion or the message of good news was not only preached to the poor, but to those in palaces and in places where people didn't even you know, ask for the gospel to be preached. God made sure that everyone had a chance to hear the word and make a decision about who uh, he offered the salvation that was granted through the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. So how did Jesus stretch his disciples' faith? Well, he told them that they needed to minister to the crowd's hunger, right? He didn't send the crowds away. And at a point when he should, he was grieving and, and he probably would have preferred to be alone and to pray, we see Jesus having compassion on the people, ministering to the crowd's hunger, ministering to people in their healing one by one. So they're... But in this uh, instance where Jesus is ministering to the crowd, uh, the disciples we see have a tendency to be the bystander, right? To Jesus' ministry to the people. But after hours of standing around watching, perhaps, if you can imagine that, the disciples are uh, alerted to their own hunger. Uh, it's approaching evening time and they're getting hungry themselves. So they use this opportunity as a ruse to suggest that Jesus kind of wrap things up and close up shop per se for the day, send the people home. But even as it is evening and he has been doing all the work, uh, Jesus is really concerned about teaching and leading the disciples into his own heart and teaching them a deeper understanding of how God feels and works among people. And he tells them to give them something to eat. Now, this can be uh, a, bit, a bit jarring and disconcerting because they don't have much to give. He calls them to stop watching, however, and lingering on the outskirts of what Jesus is actually doing, uh, being spectators to what Jesus is doing, and to actually join in. He knows uh, that our resources are few like the five loaves and two fishes. They're far too small for the task evident before our eyes. But in a similar way, Jesus' blessing and prayer with thanksgiving as he ministers using the small things 
that we have in our hands to minister to the the larger uh, crowd of people when we are able to yield up what God has given to us and commit them to God's care to commit them to God's use a miraculous blessing can be achieved and we can bear witness to this so that many people that you know you and I may never realize we could have an impact or even touch the the blessings that God would use us uh, to minister with can overflow into their lives and into areas of need that uh, we never thought possible so in God we never know what our meager offerings can actually be in meeting the needs of the world that God has called us to move and act into and it reminds me of a hymn that's uh, sung uh, in churches long ago, maybe not sung too much anymore, uh, that we, when we have exhausted our store of endurance, the stanza says, uh, when our strength has failed and the day is half done and we reach the end of our hoarded resources and all the things that we think we have as a toolkit or the set of our, the repertoire of our abilities or capabilities, uh, when those have been exhausted and we don't know where else to go, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto man. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, the Father gives and gives and giveth again. So the end of man's resources, we learn, is the beginning of God's immense riches and abilities. And the gift in which we can plow into and understand more deeply his grace. So what does the truth about Jesus uh, stand out from this uh, miracle? Well, as Christians, we need to use uh, a different kind of math. The logic of the math that we understand is flawed when we start to see Jesus. We need to use a kind of Christian math, which means that we can't use worldly logic to think about, okay, so we have so little, I can only do so little. But um, and, and that kind of logic plays into many other aspects in which we think about the way we are qualified in the world. How good or bad I look, or how too old or young I am, or how busy or not busy I am to undertake the work of God. So Christian math says that when you think it can't be done, it may be impossible for you from your limited vision, but it is not impossible for God. And there may be times that I wasn't in that place or if it would be nice if someone else could take undertake what needs to be done. But the Christian math says that I have to put myself in a position of being Christ's hands and Christ's feet in the position of ministry and service and sharing the God's word where needed. So I look at what I can do and do it by faith, placing myself into God's heart and concern and let him take it from there. I serve with his vision and mission in mind at all times. So that leads us to the uh, first principle. The first principle says, the nature of your material and physical resource is never too little to be used by God for his glory. So don't underestimate or misunderstand your limitations for God's desire to want to use you. Sometimes we, because we renege on and we don't work into the opportunities that God sends our lives, we start to develop in our minds that perhaps we haven't been endowed and we haven't been given the right tools to be able to be effective in God's kingdom. But if you keep looking at what you don't have as reasons not to participate in God's work, then you'll never see the power of God and the work of God in your life. 
But if you take the steps, steps that you can undertake with prayer and do what you can with the little that you have, Jesus shows us that we can see the unbelievable things happen that will change and challenge even our own view of God and His working in our lives. The reason that you keep failing and stagnating in your faith is because um, you and I, we keep living into a small view of God. And the small view of God results in a small view of our salvation and our identity as tools and instruments of God, as children of God, living to carry out God's purposes. It's time to make concerted moves into a larger view of God than what we have settled for for many years. And in this working of feeding so many, uh, the thousands, I also think about an, another uh, side interest of mine, which is cosmology, thinking of the uh, creation of the universe. The nature of the miracle of feeding so many is that Jesus bypasses everything we know about the process of bread making, from taking flour, mixing it with water and salt, seeing it kneaded and uh, uh, worked into, to see it rise and put into the oven, and waiting for the time when it ta it's taken out of the oven, and then cooled and put into baskets to be distributed. So this long process, which could have not only taken more time, but much more resources, uh, people to do uh, undertake this work, uh, we see um, was not the way Jesus did it. We see the stars and the miracles of life and the wonder all around us and think, does God need to go through billions of years of processing to bring about the, the final result before our eyes and our minds to wonder? Um, no, not in this case. So it gives me pause to think about uh, the work of the universe that God is, has done as something that doesn't require the time because ultimately it was done for us. So they saw what he could do and wanted to make him king as a result of he being able to feed thousands. You know, people are always coming to God and making him out to be, forcing God to be for them, the little God to serve their needs in the lives that they want for themselves. They wanted to force Jesus to be the political Messiah, the social welfare Messiah that they saw as an impulse from the uh, being fed and, and seeing God work this miracle. When Jesus came to be an entirely different Messiah as prophesied from ancient times, God withdraws from people who possess such impulses because he will never be the God that we expect and want him, we force him to be, because he is the God that's much greater than our impulses in our carnal desires, in our, in our uh, notions of what is best and good. He is far above that. So the application to take away in this thought is, so what part of our demands is clouding the right view of God and what he wants to do in our lives? How has this disconnect from our perception of what God should be or ought to be, hope to be, is contrary to who God says he is and what he will do and what he is seeking to do in building his kingdom in Christ? And how does that create friction and upset us in our faith, faith walk when all the ways in which we complain about God in this world, much of that complaint and the friction comes when we misunderstand and read off of a different script from what God has always been telling us about himself and his purposes. When you keep coming to him with your demands, never seeking to know his heart and his mind and his heart, Jesus just walks away, so to speak, from our clamoring hands to get him to do our will. So what reasons might Jesus have for his response? 
Well, Jesus gives his disciples time to process. Process, he puts them on a boat and he has them go away. And so after a day's work, to think about what Jesus had done and the heart in which he had to do it. And sometimes we need that time to process too, that Jesus, our Christ, comes at calling himself the bread of life. He in fact comes from Bethlehem, the city of bread. Bethlehem means the city of bread. And Jesus says that he is the manna from heaven, the true bread of life that we can eat and consume and absorb and imitate after himself, to be assimilated after himself. For the crowds, well, they turn away from social action plans uh, derived from what they see as the immediate social needs. And they're, they're kind of disabused of their ideas because Jesus will have no part of it. And for Jesus himself, uh, it's evening and he needs to rest in a human way, but he also wants to pray over the many things that have happened. The faithlessness of the people, but also the works, the works of those who are contrary to his ways, uh, bringing people down and even murdering the prophets of God. So all of John's message in life was itself a parallel to call attention to the crucifixion and death of the Messiah, whom he prophesied about, told about, bore witness to, and give, which is all for the purpose of giving people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. So why does Jesus intentionally send his disciples in a boat and into a storm? Well, our spiritual discipleship and dis development doesn't happen in a close box. And you know this from your own life as well as I do, that it doesn't happen merely by reading a lot of books or taking a lot of notes uh, about Bible studies, going to seminary. It actually happens in the experience of tough times when we choose to trust God or we just keep staring out into the storm with a woe is me attitude. Those are the two choices. We trust God or we, and we act on the trust or we just kind of stand there, stare out into the storm, pitying ourselves. Some of the greatest believers in the faith are those who experience some of the hardest, most difficult times in their lives when they have been confronted by two choices and they chose always to trust God. And Jesus offers us that choice too. And to discover something radically new that they had never seen before. Jesus saw a bunch of men who saw miracles and power, but personally didn't have the opportunity to choose who they wanted to trust until the storm out in the sea. So they were afraid and it was dark and the waves kept wildly tossing their boat and they thought he, that Jesus coming over the waters was a ghost as they had never seen a person walk on water before. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Of all the things that can be expected of us at times like this, you know, Peter asked Jesus to call him out on the water with him. And somehow he believes that if Jesus is able to feed thousands and now come to them on the water, that Jesus would be able to enable him to walk on the water as, as well. And when Jesus calls him, I wonder if he did not smile a little bit as Peter crawled out of the boat and climbs down and walks toward Jesus. How do we recognize when we are relying on God and when we are not? Well, like Peter, it's easy for us to see the winds and start to second guess things or to tally up things in our minds and say, we're going to die. Things are bad. Things are beyond bad. All these things seem to disqualify us and put us in a position of helplessness. And all these things are threatening to undo us as we are and take, us, take our eyes off of Jesus and his watch over us. It was when Peter became afraid that he'd start to sink. 
And it's a fascinating account of exploring what fear and sink and doubt does to us in sinking our faith. Um, and this is another way of thinking about our man-made perceptions of God, right? And how Peter at this moment couldn't live into the triumph that Jesus is declaring himself over the waters. So what did Jesus' words and actions in this encounter reveal about himself to the disciples? Well, he reveals that Jesus is here and he knows our fears and doubts in light of God. Even as he stands right before us, making his appeal to us, he knows how we struggle and our minds get carried off into situations and wild imaginations of what can go wrong without thinking about God in any of those circumstances. So in principle two, we can trust God to master our storms and walk with us over the threatening waters. Our fear grows when we let our doubts overtake every opportunity to trust God and His Lordship over our entire life, regardless of the winds and waves that crash in around us. If you've ever been intimidated and afraid by trouble and doubt, you know that it comes wildly and boldly. I mean, it just kind of messes up everything and it, it actually kind of absorbs all of our senses. So much so that our mental radar takes in all of the risks and all of the threatening forces at work conspiring to bring us down and make us forget about God and what he wants to do and what he may be doing through all of it. And God says to us in the middle of all of that, oh, you of little faith, even your little faith allows you to get this far with me. Why did you doubt me now? You have experienced my love, my protection, my words of life in your heart. Don't doubt that I can help you overcome and have victory even here and even now. And this is what Jesus is saying. You've already come all this way, and I've already shown you how much I'm ready and willing to do for you, far above and beyond what you can even imagine. So why do you doubt me now? And we have to remember and realize that this is a critically important uh, climax to the day because a lot of things have happened here. It started with the very grievous and disheartening news of a greatly respected prophet of God, John the Baptist, being beheaded, right? And their feelings would have been just like ours. I mean, the confusion that we have here too. Why don't God, why didn't you save John the Baptist? I mean, he's your cousin, he's your prophet, he's your he's the one that goes before you. The expectation is that he could have divinely rescued and restored John. And from the evil clutches, the clutches of the evil rulers, and condemned and brought them to ruined. And that's the way that we see the world. But instead, uh, it was through this tragedy that brought uh, the confusion and doubt through which God shows his power, right? To show us that uh, what we are seeing as a natural arc of God's work is not the way that God sees. So why does God allow his holy, faithful servant to die such a ruinous death? What Jesus showed them, the appropriate response in light of what we do not understand. They were mobbed by thousands of people who didn't understand, who didn't um, allow them to mourn, but Jesus had compassion on them and healed them and ministered to them. And in the midst of their poverty, he enabled the disciples to serve and to feed them all, not thinking about their problems and their concerns and how they just heard the news of John the Baptist, but feeding and ministering regardless of that, in hope and in joy, leading them into impossible ministries that they themselves by human reasoning or strength could not do. And then they entered a boat at Jesus' command, only to encounter a storm that caused them to row all night and fear for their lives. 
Jesus had come to them in the midst of their personal distress, calmed the winds, and entered the boat with them. They knew by the end of the day that he was no mere man, and they worshipped him as the Son of God. Jesus didn't want their knowledge to be cerebral or academic, but intensely personal. Why did Jesus, John have to die? Because John's death was pointing to a more significant death on the cross that Jesus was, uh, was to do in the days to come. And by Jesus' death, God could show us something more amazing, the birth of the kingdom of God, if only we would believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we've always had a smaller view of you than you would have for us to have. You've declared yourself sovereign and all-sufficient. And we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to flow into the 14th chapter to read about how in the face of confusion and the ways in which we don't, we don't understand why uh, innocent man had to, be, had to die, we realize, Lord, that in the perfect plan of things, that you are at work to do and achieve the great kingdom of God in which we are all living into and we are all called to as your people. And so, Lord, help us to rejoice in you and to, uh, in our own lives, continue to learn more of you and your presence in our lives be manifest in the ways in which we carry out your work. Thank you, Father. We pray that you would be exalted and glorified, especially in these days when all of mankind is looking for answers. It can only be found in yourself, through your salvation plan in Christ Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.